well met, everybody. Welcome to Geek Thyself, a show by nerds, for nerds, who love geeking out over random facts and esoteric trivia. My name is Heather. I'm Russell. And we'll be your hosts for this journey through the wondrous land of information. everyone welcome back to geek thyself uh we've got another solo episode this week it's just me i don't have russ here with me unfortunately um we're working on getting together this coming weekend hopefully so that we can record some duo episodes for you again but in the meantime i'm here to talk about one of my favorite authors uh he's also one of my favorite poets uh i there's a couple of his poems in particular that i really love and that is rudyard kipling Uh, For anyone who thinks the name sounds familiar, but you can't quite place it, it might be because you are familiar with one of his very, very famous works, The Jungle Book. Rudyard Kipling is the author who wrote The Jungle Book. He was born um, in England in 1865, December 30th, so he was a New Year's baby. And his full name is actually Joseph Rudyard Kipling, but he went by Rudyard. And uh, quite often, if you see him referenced places, it'll either be Rudyard Kipling or just Kipling. Because his name was rather unique. And, um, and you know, I, I apologize. I said he was born in England. He was actually born in India, which was at the time under the control of England. So that's one of the reasons why so much of his work, um, in particular The Jungle Book, of course, was inspired by his time there. You know, obviously, having been born there and growing up there for a while, he became very familiar with the culture. Now, I mentioned that he's one of my favorite authors, and he is. The Jungle Book is obviously one of his most famous pieces of work, because who hasn't heard of The Jungle Book, courtesy of Disney turning it into a (laughs) movie? Um, Another one that he did that actually got turned into an animated feature is Ricky Tiki Tavi. For anyone who's heard it but maybe doesn't remember, Ricky Tiki Tavi is the story of a mongoose who gets taken in by a British family living in India who has a, a single young son. And the son really bonds with Ricky and makes him his pet. And then the mongoose ends up saving the family from a snake who is trying to uh, attack them. Now, of course, it's a story. So in the story, the snake is, you know, not acting on instinct or anything. It's actually actively going after the family. And mongoose are known for killing snakes. So the mongoose does what he does and protects his family. But the story, Ricky Tiki Tabby, is one I loved as a kid. And then when I got older, I read The Jungle Book, the original, um, before Disney changed it to their version, which is... Obviously, there's a lot of similarities, although there's no singing. (laughs) There's no um, songs like in the Disney one. And then he also has another story that's fairly famous. It was made into a movie, but it was done a very long time ago, and it wasn't animated. So it's not something that quite as many people are aware of because it wasn't Disney-fied. That particular book is called Kim. And Kim was the story of a young boy who ended up um, sort of involved with some uh, people in India. Um, And it's specifically set after the second Afghan war, 
but before the third between 1990 or excuse me 1893 and 1898 and it, it's a sort of a snapshot of the culture and various religions of India but it's it's also the story of this young boy who's you know trying to really figure out where he belongs he's actually the orphaned son of an Irish soldier and um you know growing up there you know his poor Irish mother has also passed away um anyone that might have wanted to take care of him pretty much has passed away or isn't there and so he has to figure out how to live and survive in India under British rule and he did he does begging he does small errands and things like that and you know depending on who he's working with he befriends a few different people and um ends up uh going on a quest to free himself from the wheel of things by it's given to him by a tibetan lama and you know he really just travels and it's a, a really good overview of what india was like at the time and of course rudyard kipling is familiar with what india was like at the time because he was there <laughs> at least for part of it so if you're like me and you enjoy learning about history and different time periods and what people were doing different during those different time periods then looking into that book might be a good option for you especially if you enjoyed the overall arcing story of the jungle book because obviously even though the jungle book disney version is definitely very different um the story the core story is still the one that rudyard kipling came up with so if you enjoyed the core story there's a good chance that you would enjoy it um, he also has quite a few uh, famous short stories. I am not as familiar with his short stories, admittedly. Um, one of them is called The Man Who Would Be King, um, which he published in 1888. And it's a story about two British adventurers in British India. They're looking to become the kings of a place called Kafiristan, which is a remote portion of Afghanistan, and it's the story of them attempting to do so. He also has quite a few famous poems. Um, there's a lot of them. One of my favorites, which is actually, um, uh, it's one I quote still to this day, <laughs> is uh, a poem called Gunga Din. Gunga Din is uh, the story, it's a poem, but it is the story of a British soldier who's, it's, it's written from the perspective of a British soldier who is watching a young man named Gunga Din who is an Indian um, native and he is running around and taking water to the British soldiers while they're fighting in a war and you know he he comments on how the bombs are going off and the gunfire is everywhere and there's injured people and Gunga Din keeps running back and forth back and forth braving the danger to bring the British soldiers the water that they need and one of the one of the most famous lines is the final line of the poem and it's a pretty famous one actually if you're interested in poetry from the time period is you're a better man than i am gunga din and it's the british soldier realizing that you know he he's fighting he's in this war but he is nowhere near as brave as this young man with no armor no nothing running around taking water to the British soldiers who keep yelling at him and, you know, not treating him great. And he realizes that Gunga Din's the best of them all because he's doing this despite the danger. It's a really well-written poem. It's very pretty. Um, I don't want to get in trouble for <laughs> 
plagiarizing any of his stuff or copyright issues, so I can't really read a whole lot of his poetry, unfortunately. Um, I can give you a couple of the most famous lines, of course, and um, Gunga Din is one of my favorites. He has another one called The White Man's Burden, um, which, um, to be clear, Rudyard Kipling was born back in, you know, 1865 when it wasn't uncommon for people to, uh, for, in particular for British people, to feel very entitled and like they're helping the poor natives, quote unquote. And Rudyard Kipling, having spent time in India, didn't necessarily agree with that mentality. He actually was known to write some uh, satirical uh, poems about white men or white countries um, going in and trying to take over other countries and help them. You know, how it's the quote-unquote white man's burden to help these poor savages. But he was making fun of it, to be clear. He was poking fun at it. He was known for doing that. Um, people didn't always like that he did that because that's, you know, how dare he, but he did it. And one of his other famous poems is one called The White Man's Burden. He wrote it in 1899, and it's specifically regarding the United States and the Philippine Islands. So it's one that he wrote referencing some of the things that happened during the Philippine-American War and the fact that um, the U.S. basically colonized the Philippines and took it over. And um, he, his poem, The White Man's Burden, was sort of poking satirical fun at the fact that America was like, oh, we're going to save them, we're going to protect them at the time. Um, which, I'm an American, but even I will agree that there are times when we sometimes overstep what is necessary for us to be helpful. We, we take it a step too far on occasion. By we, I mean the government, not myself, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I'm aware of that. So I enjoy the poem. You may not, if that's not your thing, I enjoy it personally, which is why he's one of my favorite authors. Um, another poem he's written that I, I absolutely love, I, I'm trying to find the date on it right now, but um, it is a poem called uh, The Female of the Species. It's one of my favorites. Um, and, you know, I, I very much appreciate someone who recognizes that strong women are not a bad thing. And this entire poem, the entire poem, Female of the Species, is Rudyard Kipling giving examples of ways that women, the females of a different species, are deadlier than the males. He talks about how, again, I'm not reading the actual poetry just so I don't get in trouble, but he talks about how, you know, a regular bear in the Himalayas um, could be scared off by a man yelling at him. But a she-bear, if they do the same thing, is going to tear the man apart. And he talks about, you know, a cobra, the male cobra, will slither away rather than getting into it with a human, whereas the female cobra will strike and attack. Things like that. Or um, one that he, one of the verses that I, it's a little sketchier, um, please keep in mind, very different times. But um, it comments on how the, the Jesuit priests who went to try to colonize different Native American cultures um, 
did fine with the warriors, didn't care about the warriors, but that the women, the squaws, um, intimidated them, things like that. So basically the whole poem is talking about how, you know, there's all of these things you can do to get to scare off the male of the species. The female of the species, however, is going to tear you a new one. And every verse ends with, for the female of the species is more deadly than the male. And that's sort of the famous line from the poem. It's called Female of the Species. If you're a woman like me who enjoys women empowerment and acknowledgement thereof, you might want to look it up. It's definitely, I think, a good poem. I, the, the words he uses and the, the imagery is really pretty. Um, well, pretty in terms of well done. Like I, I can visualize what he's thinking as he's describing it. Um, the, the prose themselves, the words, are not necessarily, you know, beautiful in the Shakespeare type of way. But in terms of the imagery that it provides you, I think it does a very good job. And that's one of the things that I really like about a lot of his stories and a lot of his poetry. Um, the imagery that he's able to evoke with his, with his books, with his prose, with his poems um, really hits you. Like, you know, the Gunga Din one that I was talking about where he's describing this young man running back and forth across a battlefield. And he does it very well. You know, it's very descriptive and you can you can see these different images. You know, anyone who's ever watched a war movie ever can or been in a war can imagine some of these images and some of the things that are happening around him. And at the same time, this young man's just putting his head down and running and getting everybody the water they need to keep his British soldiers running. And then in the terms of female the species, again, very good imagery. You can picture what's happening in the poem and the fact that you know the male cobra slithers away but the female cobra is going to strike you or the male bear is going to turn around and leave you alone and the female bear is going to tear you open and it's the he doesn't describe the tearing open to be clear but you know he talks about that kind of personality that kind of imagery and does a really good job with it and of course jungle book you know one of the reasons that the Jungle Book is such a well-fleshed-out story and has so many different twists and turns and so much depth to it is that he did write, uh, he wrote a very descriptive, very beautiful imagery again of the jungle and of the animals and the different personalities that he imagined for them um, and the, the creatures that Mowgli grew up with. So, you know, I, I love his poems and his books so much. My cat is named Mowgli just to give you an example so you know obviously it's pretty clear he is one of my favorite authors but I believe at this point it's a good time to do the mid-roll and then when I come back um, now that I've talked about some of my favorite stories of his I'm going to talk about his life um, it's, it'll be quick because he actually had a pretty long life but I only have 15 minutes so I will see you in a, a few Hi everyone and welcome to this week's mid-roll. Like always, I want to start off by talking about our amazing sponsors, World Anvil. You can go to worldanvil.com to look up the different packages and different options they have, but they are the most robust campaign management and um, 
writing software that's out there. They won an any award for being such good campaign management software. There's so many things you can do with it, linking different uh, entries, linking different people that you've created. If you're an author, you can use it to flesh out your world. If you're a game master, you can use it to flesh out the world for your players and give them a way to keep notes and connect different um, different storylines that you've created. It's a really, really brilliant tool for all of those things. And I definitely recommend you check it out. That's worldanvil.com. Our other amazing sponsor here at Nerdsmith is Die Hard Dice. I can't even talk enough about how gorgeous their dice are. They have so many different options, so many different color combinations. They have beautiful metal dice. And one of the things I love about their metal dice is that they have, um, depending on the style you get, they actually have some with blunted corners so that if you drop it on top of your wood table, it doesn't leave a huge dent. <laughs> I mean, it might leave a dent, but it doesn't leave a huge gouge. And then I also definitely uh, recommend checking out some of their other products, like their Scroll of Rolling. The Scroll of Rolling is amazing. It can hold up to two sets of dice, and it's basically a rolling mat that's very easy to take with you, and it protects your dice at the same time, so it's really useful. And if you use the code Geek Thyself you can get 15, 1-5% off your first or next purchase with Die Hard Dice. It is a one-time use coupon, but you definitely can use it and get a good deal. And also, they're just amazingly nice people, so we love supporting them. And that goes for World Anvil as well. Amazingly nice people. So with that, I'm going to get back into this week's topic, and let's talk some more about Rudyard Kipling and his life. Hey everyone, welcome back. So Rudyard Kipling, as I mentioned, was born actually in India. He was born in uh, British-run India, specifically in Bombay. Um, his mother was Alice Kipling and his father was John Lockwood Kipling. They were uh, known for being, well, his mother was one of uh, four sisters known for being vivacious and um, you know, very colorful, very uh, profound personality. And they uh, named him Rudyard because they had courted at Rudyard Lake in Staffordshire, England. So they decided to give him that name as a remembrance of their time together there. Um, one thing that uh, happened from there, of course, is that he attended the one of the British schools that were in Bombay at the time. Specifically, he went to the, uh, or he was born on the, at the JJ School of Art in Bombay. Um, his family, his mother's family, had married artists several times over, and uh, John Lockwood, his father, John Lockwood Kipling, was actually a sculptor and a pottery designer. So the arts were very heavily involved in his life growing up. Um... They also were very, very big proponents of the Indian culture. They loved the India, um, the Indian culture, excuse me, and um, the people and the identities. And they actually, at the time, referred to themselves as um, something called Anglo-Indians, which it was a term specifically used during the time period to uh, reference British people who had the origin of living in India. So like their son, for example, who was born in India was someone they considered an Anglo-Indian. It's a weird term and not one that gets used anymore, 
but historically that's how they liked to refer to themselves. And um, he was sent to England when he was five to be educated. Um, it was very, very common practice for the children, even when they were born in India, to be taken to England and educated there for at least a portion of their education, if not all of it, depending on the situation. They would be sent to boarding schools um, for British nationals who were living abroad and then study there. He, while he was working there, or yeah, while he was attending school there, he uh, didn't have the best time. There was cruelty and neglect, which unfortunately is not unheard of during that time frame when you're talking about boarding schools. A lot of uh, British nationals, especially if they lived in some of the colonized areas, would send their children back to England for education. So you would see these young girls and boys who'd, you know, been living in fairly tropical-ish weather, like India, <laughs> suddenly being shipped off to merry old England where it rains and snows half the year, and they didn't know what to do with it. So the children were often unhappy about that, you know, and they weren't with their parents. And on top of that, some of those boarding schools uh, were not particularly nice, especially depending on how rich your parents were. Um, there's a lot of different people who, over the years who've written about their experiences there and their different autobiographies. And in his, in Rudyard Kipling's autobiography that he published uh, 65 years after attending the school, he also mentions in his autobiography that after living at the school, he and his sister were taken in by a, well, taken in. His parents were still alive, but they were raised for a while with a family um, a Mr. and Mrs., or excuse me, Captain and Mrs. Holloway. Um, it wasn't uncommon for people at the time to have their relatives or perhaps, you know, a friend, a relative of a relative or a relative of a friend help take care of their children. It was always with references, almost always, but that didn't necessarily mean that they were always the nicest. And he actually referenced his time there um, in his book as being particularly awful. Um, this is a quote from him. If you cross-examine a child of seven or eight on his day's doings, especially when he wants to go to sleep, he will contradict himself very satisfactorily. If each contradiction be set down as a lie and retailed at breakfast, life is not easy. I have known a certain amount of bullying, but this was calculated torture religious as well as scientific. Yet it made me give attention to the lies I soon found it necessary to tell. And this, I presume, is the foundation of literary effort. So essentially he's acknowledged that, he acknowledged in his autobiography that some of the, the tales he had to come up with or the ways he had to phrase things may have helped improve his literary ability and sort of hastened his literary life but that doesn't necessarily make it right for her to have treated them badly. We do know that uh, from what he saw, at least, his sister seemed to be treated a little better, partly perhaps because Mrs. Holloway hoped that uh, Trix, his younger sister, would marry um, the Holloway's son, but they, uh, since they had no children, or excuse me, since the children, the two Kipling children, had no relatives in England, they couldn't really, um, visit them so they'd go to their maternal aunt and her husband um 
in part of London, but it was, you know, not a close relation. And they'd go and spend some time there, and he uh, he definitely excelled there at their house, and that's one of the things that helped him survive through those awful years. And then later they returned, um, or excuse me, later his mother returned from India and uh, took the children, and at that point, um, you know, they the children were asked, why didn't anyone why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us you were being treated so badly? But he just, he didn't know what to say to them at the time that it was all happening. And then they were all living together in England. His father was still in India, but Alice, his mother, was at least in England with them, which made it a little easier for him. You know, him, one of his parents was there. Um, and at this point, he'd already developed an interest in writing and literature, you know, as a young boy. Then, uh, ended up going back to India. Um, his father was serving as the Mayo College of Art and curator of the Lahore Museum, principal of the Mayo College of Art and the curator of the Lahore Museum in India, in Lahore. So they um, ended up going back there for a while. And he spent some time there and, you know, he was about 16 or so and um, just really, uh, enjoyed himself there. He, he went and saw Bombay and uh, he felt like he was home again. Like India was where he felt at home at the time. So he spent time in India. He worked on British newspapers and he started writing some of his stories. He actually does have some stories that are based off of his and his friends' adventures at the boarding school and things like that as well. But um, again, like I said, he was known for some of those short stories that he wrote and they were published in various, uh, you know, magazines and literary, uh, not journals exactly, but they had, uh, you know, literary publications that would come out periodically. And so those and other stories came out and then he moved to back to London, um, back to England at one point after some of his uh, stories were accepted into magazines there. And of course, um, his he married eventually. He uh, married a woman named Carrie Ballastier, um, and uh, they, from there, from their wedding, they um, went and uh, settled upon a honeymoon that took them to the U.S. first, and they traveled through various portions, and they also went to Japan, um, and a few others. And uh, he lost some money over the years and gained some money and wrote more stories. And they settled in England ultimately. And there he continued to write and write and write and write. And, you know, as I've mentioned, he's got many famous poems as well as the famous stories like The Jungle Book. He did have children. And you see, he had multiple children. I am just trying to make sure I get the right number. Um, unfortunately, you know, like so many at the time, um, one of his children was killed in one of the wars. It was, uh, his son, John Kipling, who died at the Battle of Luz in September of 1915. He was only 18, um, 
he actually had been turned down for joining the military a few different times until his father, Rudyard, was able to get him a position because he was friends with a former member of the British officer, or of the British Army. And so at that point, they were able to get um, his son in. And so, you know, it's very unfortunate. And um, in a poem he wrote, which came after his son's death, one of the things, um, it's called Epitaphs of War, of the War. And one of the lines is, if any question why we died, tell them because our fathers lied. And a lot of people suspect that that's some of his guilt over the fact that he, his son would not have died um, in that war if he hadn't gotten him into the military the way he did by pulling some strings with friends. He did have other children. Um, of course, he had the, his son, John Kipling. He also had a daughter, um, Josephine. Unfortunately, she did die when she was six years old. Um, she um, caught pneumonia. And at the time, you know, not easy to necessarily protect them. So, it, unfortunately, a lot of people would lose their children. Even if they were well-to-do and had money, they would still definitely lose some of their children over the years. And, you know, Josephine was one of them. They did have a second daughter. Her name was Elsie. Um, and um, like I mentioned, they had their son, John, as well. So they had a few children and raised them in England. Uh, and Rudyard continued to write. And during, uh, during the different wars, he was, again, known for writing some satirical pieces and commentary pieces. Um, they weren't always very popular because he was often speaking out against the wars. But um, they were still circulated nonetheless. And then finally, um, he, he kept writing and kept writing until the early 1930s, um, though he had slowed his pace over the years. And then on uh, January 12th, 1936, he suffered a hemorrhage in his small intestine. He went to surgery, but unfortunately died about a week later um, on January 18th, 1936, at 70 years old, of an, uh, a perforated duodenal ulcer, most likely partly caused by the surgery. Um, and actually, you know, we have this happen now, but there was a magazine who incorrectly announced his death a little too early, and uh, his response to them was, I've just read that I am dead. Don't forget to delete me from your list of subscribers. So he definitely had a good sense of humor. <laughs> and, um, you know, he was known throughout England. He wasn't knighted the way, um, or, or given a, a title like Dame, like Dame Agatha Christie was, at least not at the time. But his stories definitely had a lasting impression. And, um, definitely something for uh, for you to look into if you think any of those sound 
like a story you'd like to read. He's one of my favorite authors. I apologize if I'm rambling. It's, you know, it's old. I'm, it's old. I'm, <laughs> I'm tired because um, it's late. And um, I love his work. Not everyone does. I'm a big fan. I highly recommend you check it out. And if you want to know more about Rudyard Kipling there, he has his autobiography as well as lots of biographies out there about his life that have a lot of great information and storytelling. He himself, his that he wrote is, of course, very well written and um, has a lot of insight into various aspects of how he came to be, who he was. But with that, I think I'm going to call this episode good. Um, It's definitely been more than a half hour, so sorry about that. And um, we will talk to you uh, not next week, but the week after. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Geek Thyself. Don't forget to check out all the other amazing content on the Nerdsmith Network. If you have any questions for either of us, you can get in contact with us on Twitter at geek underscore thyself. You can also email us at geekthyself at nerdsmith.org. And please don't forget to go to iTunes and leave us a review or also go anywhere you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back next week with another informative and fun episode. And until then, don't forget to geek thyself.